The Kushner peace plan is on its way. Iran is still terrible. ISIS is on the brink. And a fusillade of anti-Semitism rocks the U.S. Capitol. I'm Winston R. Holland, and this is Mideast News Brief. All right, so we have a lot going on in the U.S., so much so, I feel as almost as if I'm going to have to start a domestic politics show, especially when it comes to the showdown going on going on right now with the budget deal and the wall and the national emergency and all of that going on. It's actually quite interesting, but in some ways, fortunately, that is not the purview of this show. As I mentioned last week, I'm not... Yeah, I'm not here to talk about U.S. domestic wrangling, although when you're in the U.S., it's kind of hard not to talk about it. I'm going to exercise some self-control and not. But there's a whole lot going on in the Middle East. There's plenty to talk about. It's one of the difficulties of a broadcast like this, where you have an hour-long show, and you're trying to do a summary of Middle East news from the past week packed into that hour it makes preparation for the show very interesting. Almost, it could be on a schizophrenic level. There's so much news. And when you think you've prepared everything, when you, when you think you've printed out, printed out all of the news articles you're going to print out to talk about on the show, then there's just more that comes out. I could literally get on and check right now and there'd be, I could do a whole new show based off of what happened in the past 30 minutes. So, Forgive me if there's a topic that I don't get to that you would be interested in hearing about. I'm going to try to cover the most important stuff, but it it really is. Try sometime to do a summary of Middle East news. (laughs) it's, It's near impossible. So as I mentioned in the first broadcast, we've got certain themes that we're covering, right? Because there's a zillion things we could cover. So we got to narrow our narrow our scope. We've got to divide and conquer. And so the Israeli-Palestinian issue, the Iranian menace, the the normalizing of relations between Jews and the Arab countries. So all of of that is, and and more, as well as issues of anti-Semitism and the nicer topics that we want to bring up as well. Not only that, but we're talking about good news on this broadcast. We actually talk about positive developments, good things that are going on. And so I want to make sure that, that we do that each week because even in the midst of bad news, there's still good news that can come up, I'm quite happy to say. Now, I want to start off talking about, because this is really kind of my favorite topic out of everything, the Israeli-Palestinian issue. It's fascinating. It's difficult. It's sad. It's interesting. It's really a a drama that in some ways, I mean, it's really been playing out for millennia. If you go way back even to to biblical times, Israel and its rivals. So it's, it's something that is usually front and center in my mind when I'm looking at the news and I'm reading policy and looking at reports and so forth. But we did get some some breaking news out of the Warsaw Conference going on in Poland right now. There's a big conference. I'm sorry, not right now. It just ended. Big conference that just went on with the U.S., with Israel, with Poland, uh, other European nations, other Gulf Arab states. Many Arab states were there. And it was quite fascinating to see the Prime Minister of Israel sitting alongside the heads of these Gulf Arab states. I mean, just we're talking about the, the normalizing of relations between Israel and the Jewish I'm sorry, Israel and the Arab states is just, it's mind-boggling. I'm I'm loving watching it. So be excited about that and let that encourage you if you're a praying person to continue to pray for the region. Okay, enough yapping. I'm actually going to talk about the the story. But uh, Kushner at this Warsaw conference did actually unveil some news, a little bit of news about the upcoming peace plan. And as I've said, we will do a show on the upcoming peace plan. I want to break it down as much as possible. I might need to do two shows. I don't know. But this is from the Al Jameener, February 14th. This is Jared Kushner's Valentine's Day gift to all of us. Kushner, Israeli-Palestinian peace plan to be unveiled after 
Knesset elections in April. So we've got Knesset elections in Israel April 9th. After that, apparently, we're going to see the peace plan. Now, will it be April 10th? Probably not. Uh, April 16th? Unlikely. 23rd? Maybe end of April? Hopefully. (laughs) Hopefully. I will not be holding my breath because I would die if I held my breath waiting for them to release this peace plan that's apparently has been like done for a while and just kind of, I guess it's sitting on Kushner's jump drive or something. I don't know. I don't know. But hopefully we'll see it soon. But he did bring some news that we're going to see this thing maybe in the next few months. The Trump administration will present its long-awaited Israeli-Palestinian peace plan after the Knesset elections in April. Senior White House advisor Jared Kushner said on Thursday, according to media reports, Kushner was speaking at a closed-door session of a U.S.-sponsored Middle East diplomatic conference in the Polish capital of Warsaw. More than 60 countries were represented at the two-day gathering. He did not reveal any of the details of the plan, of course, and this was even announced in a closed-door session. So you see just how secretive this whole thing is is. I wonder if it was even done on a laptop that's never been connected to the internet with the jump drive as a backup so that nobody could potentially hack the thing also. Because you know if there's one thing that many people of many stripes would be interested in hacking, it is the U.S.-Israeli-Palestinian peace plan. Uh, He said both sides would have to make compromises. Uh, Netanyahu said, I look forward to receiving the plan. And we'll look at it once it's presented. He went on to say, I have to say that I know that the Trump administration seeks to ensure the security of Israel for generations, Netanyahu added. So a few things I wanted to say about this. Number one, if you know, you're on the edge of your seat about this, that's great, that's fine. I am too. It's fascinating, and I look forward to reading it multiple times. I look forward, really look forward to doing a show on it. That's going to be a lot of fun. But what we have to be careful of and what we have to understand is that the Palestinians are going to reject this plan. Okay, that's right. That's rather strong. So maybe I should tone it down a little bit. I am 99.9999999999999% sure that Palestinians are going to to reject this plan. I believe in miracles. I am a Christian. I believe Jesus Christ rose from the dead. I believe in the miracle of miracles, right? So look, miracles can happen. On the other hand, if you look at the history of Israeli-Palestinian relations and kind of the roadmap and the the way that they're trying to get to a two-state solution, they have actually, the Palestinians have rejected a two-state solution over and over and over again. In 2000, Bill Clinton and Ehud Barak brokered a deal with Yasser Arafat to basically give the Palestinians everything they could possibly ask for in a two-state solution scenario. The West Bank, Gaza, East Jerusalem. And what did Arafat do? He walked away. Arafat just walked away and then resumed terrorism, resumed terrorism after that. So he walks away from a peace deal and resumes terrorism. And we know, of course, the Palestinian Authority, we're going to talk a little bit more about that, but the Palestinian Authority, they, as I mentioned previously, actually, on the broadcast, they support terrorism by giving pensions to Palestinians who murder Jews or maim Jews or whatever, and the better job you do at that, the more money you make. It's And they actually confirmed in 2018, 2017 total, they spent like $1.2 billion. $1.2 billion in support of the families of these terrorists, whom they honor and call martyrs. Fatah is not moderate. I mean, if if that's our idea of moderate, we really we really need like uh, some serious soul searching, right? <clears throat> I understand Fatah's the reality. I understand it is it's something that must be dealt with. But 
I don't think pretending that they're moderate, pretending they're not extremists who want from the river to the sea, Palestine to be free, as is chanted all over college campuses and all over the world, we, we have to understand, we have to live in a reality of what we're actually dealing with. I mean, I think that's reasonable. I think, I think living in reality with the Israeli-Palestinian issue is reasonable. Okay, Winston, so what is the solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? I'm not going to pretend that I have that information, but it's not going to solve anything by trying to pretend we can negotiate peace with a group that is a essentially a terrorist quasi-state, right? It's not a full state, right? Obviously, they're working on trying to get a Palestinian state. But again, the, they're, not, they're not interested in a Palestinian state. They're, well, okay, I'm sorry, excuse me. They are interested in a Palestinian state. They are not interested in a two-state solution, which is why they want the right of return for refugees to be able to flood back into Israel so that they can basically turn Israel into a third Palestinian state to where you have Jordan, which if you go back to the history, back all the way to the Balfour Declaration and the San Remo Conference, Israel was actually given, oh, I'm sorry, the Jews were actually given all of what we know as Transjordan and Israel and the West Bank and Gaza today. They were given that. Then it was partitioned. Uh, Transjordan was partitioned. They got 77% of the land. And so the Arabs would get 77%. The Jews get 23%, which would be what we now know as Israel, West Bank, Gaza. But then... Half of that was taken away from Israel to where they're basically left with what they have today, which they have taken and done unbelievable things with. You just look at the advances in medicine and technology coming out of this itty-bitty Jewish state. It, it's pretty marvelous. It's, it's noteworthy, and, and it's exciting. So, look, all that to say they're not interested in a Palestinian state next to a Jewish state. They're interested in a Palestinian state that encompasses all of what we know today as the West Bank, Gaza, and Israel. So, the peace plan is going to be coming out. It's going to be interesting. Now, when the Palestinians do reject this peace plan, again, they reject yet another peace plan, well, then maybe the Israelis will be able to move in a direction that they weren't able to before, because this will be yet one more time they'll be able to point to Palestinian rejectionism, saying they're not interested in peace, the Trump administration offered them everything they could possibly want, but they're not willing to negotiate, yada yada, and then the peace process dies, and who knows, maybe Israel ups the settlements. I was reading something about how uh, apparently the Israeli government is attempting to put about another one million settlers in the West Bank. Wow, uh, that would that would be a rather ambitious plan. But we shall see. We shall see. I know I'm going on and on about this, but this really is a favorite topic of mine. Another thing, this is out of the Wall Street Journal. Israel, Gulf states, commend Kushner's peace effort. Okay, fair enough. This is February 14th. President Trump's son-in-law and senior advisor Jared Kushner said that a show of unity among Israeli and Arab officials at a U.S.-backed conference here made him feel optimistic about prospects for peace in the Middle East, according to officials who witnessed the presentation behind closed doors on Thursday. But he did not, like I said before, he did not provide any details of the administration's plan which, I mean, he's been working on it for about two years. I mean, that's quite a, that's, that's a dissertation. But as probably one of the most important dissertations in history. During Thursday's session, U.S. officials, including Vice President Mike Pence and Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, accused Iran of causing instability and conflict across the Middle East, bringing together a group of countries, including Israel, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and other Gulf nations that share that view. Look, the Arabs are interested 
in a Palestinian state. So on some level, I do believe some Arab countries would like to see a Palestinian state alongside an Israeli state. They would take that deal. I think Arab states would like Kushner's peace plan because the Palestinian cause has been going on a long time. And when the Gulf states know, they know this too. They know that the Palestinians have rejected it over and over and over and over again. And so they go, at some point, at some point, enough is enough. And they're actually interested in normalizing relations, having some peace, having successful economies, not being in a war or civil war with Iran, which is one of the things that is uniting, which we're going to talk about in a minute, which is one of the things that's uniting all these Gulf Arab states. So the Gulf states, they want, I believe many of them want peace, and they're proving it by the fact they're sitting side by side with Israel at this conference in Europe, something that would have been unthinkable. It seems like I'm reading every day about another Gulf Arab state that is interested in having good ties with Israel. They see the Iran, the Iranian threat, they want peace, and they see it is darn good to do business with Israel. So why the heck not? Why the heck not? Uh, so I am, I'm excited about that. A few more quotes from this article. Outside the Warsaw Conference, Arab officials tried to tamp down expectations for a diplomatic breakthrough, citing the lack of progress on the conflict between Israel and the Palestinians. They have insisted full normalization with Israel is impossible without progress toward a Palestinian state. So this is interesting. This was the Saudi intelligence uh, chief and ambassador to Washington. He said, from the Israeli point of view, Mr. Netanyahu would like us to have a relationship, and then we can fix the Palestinian issue. From the Saudi point of view, it's the other way around. Fair enough, but I think the Saudi Arabians should understand that they were there. They were there in 2000, and they witnessed Yasser Arafat walk away from the deal of the century. (laughs) Clinton actually, he had the deal of the century in his grasp. Could you imagine? It's the last year of his second term. He wants to go out with a bank. He wants to go out with um, the foreign policy achievement maybe of the millennia, right? This was 2000 the last year of the millennia, and he would be going out with a, a Israeli-Palestinian deal where you have a two-state solution. It's within his grasp. He's got it before him. And Arafat's like, yeah, I know this is everything that I wanted, but eh. And I was actually reading Carolyn Glick's book, The One-State Solution, which is quite, it's, it's interesting. I don't know if I agree with it at all. She She has a she doesn't think the demographic issue is a big problem and that the population numbers are way inflated to get more money from the UN and all this. Maybe she's right. I haven't finished the book. I'm, I'm working through it. But she does tell a very interesting exchange between Yasser Arafat and Bill Clinton after this went down. Arafat says to Clinton, you know, Mr. Mr. Clinton, you are, a, you are a great man. And Clinton responds with, no, I'm not. I'm a failure and you made me one. And the Saudi uh, and a Saudi prince, I forget his name, but he even squarely blamed Arafat for the breakdown of the Camp David Accords. So I I understand the Saudis want a Palestinian state and then normalizing relations, but that's it's idiotic to expect that. The Palestinians are going to walk away just like they always have done. If I'm wrong, I'll be the first to say it right here, but I do not think that I am. So, Mr. Pompeo, Secretary of State, said, It's undeniable that Iran's aggression in the region has brought Israel and Arab states closer together. What I think was even more remarkable is that it didn't feel all that historic. It felt right. It felt normal because we were working on a common problem. Uh, legitimate nations, 
they do want to solve problems. Legitimate nations want peace. Legitimate nations want to move forward and not be stuck in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s. They don't want to be stuck there. Let's move on after a century of all this garbage, right? Um, so this is good news, though. Again, it's good news. It's something I'm excited about. <coughs> but we'll just have to see how it, how it shakes down. Get some water there. So now this is interesting. This just came out this morning. That's why I <laughs> I really almost shouldn't check the news in the morning before the podcast because I could have eight million more articles that I could talk about. This is I'm on the third one. We're already twenty minutes into the broadcast, so th- there's just there's just so much information. But this is interesting from the Jerusalem Post. From the so I'm going to share an article from the Israeli side from the Jerusalem Post and an article from the Palestinian side, also from the Jerusalem Post, both out this morning. Oh, I'm sorry. This was February 12th. I was looking at the printed date. Never mind. This is February 12th, but it's still very informative. Yuli Edelstein says a Palestinian state is not on the agenda. Now, why is this guy important? Knesset Speaker Yuli Edelstein of the Likud Party, and who's, according to the polls, going to win the election? The Likud Party. Also called on the heads of the right-wing parties to unite and run together in the April 9th elections. A Palestinian state is not on the agenda, Edelstein said. Removing the idea of a Palestinian state from the world's agenda could take 20 years, but to put it back on the agenda will take 20 seconds. He made his comments during a talk at the Besheva Jerusalem Conference. In addition, Edelstein called on the heads of the right-wing parties to unite and run together in the April 9th elections. Then it gets into some election news. <laughs> this is the speaker of the Likud party that's going to likely win April 9th, saying a Palestinian state is not on the agenda. And then the Americans are going to come out with the Israeli-Palestinian peace plan right after that. It's it's going to be actually kind of a lot of fun to watch, as long as there's not any terrorism associated with it. That, of course, would be horrible. But it, it will be quite fascinating to watch how all of this plays out when Netanyahu's party isn't it really is. I mean, and we know this. I mean, we know that Likud is not interested in a Palestinian state. I think on, on some level... Netanyahu feels like he has to pretend to be interested in a Palestinian state. I think it bolsters his argument. It makes him look like he is working toward peace. Because here's the thing. He can pretend to be interested in a Palestinian state because he knows the Palestinians are going to reject it. <laughs> so he can go out there. I'm, I'm all for peace, which I think he is. I think Netanyahu actually is all for peace. But when you say I'm for peace between the Israelis and Palestinians, from the world's perspective, that means two-state solution. I, I was reading this one really thick book called Track Two, Track Two Diplomacy, Israeli-Palestinian Relations. And all throughout the book, though they basically the words the word peace was a synonym for the two-state solution, which I think is baloney, right? Because of what I discussed before, we discussed last week, right, about the Fatah Facebook page being filled with the glorification of violence. We talked they pay terrorists stipends for killing and maiming Jews. They have basically come out and said they want to essentially Jew-free Palestine when there is a Palestinian state. So this is this is this is far from from a moderate moderate people. But I digress. So I digress. So this is. It's not on the agenda for the Likud. Who's going to win? Who's going to win April 9th, most likely? Now, on the other side of the of the equation, you've got Mahmoud Abbas. He embarks on a trip to wage battle over Trump's deal of the century. This is the 13th, two days ago. Abbas is traveling from one Arab country to another in an attempt to prevent Middle East countries from supporting Trump's peace plan. 
If this is a deal between the Israeli and the Palestinians, the deal is not even out yet, and Abbas is already on diplomatic trips, acting as an envoy for the PA to get them to reject this plan before it even hits the table. That should give us all an idea about how interested the Palestinians are in this, or really, honestly, any other solution. Abbas is traveling from one Arab country to another in an attempt to prevent Middle East countries from supporting Trump's peace plan. Palestinian news agency Ma'an carried pictures from Abbas's trip to Saudi Arabia on Tuesday where he met with Saudi King Salman in Riyadh. Salman said that, quote, Saudi Arabia permanently stands by Palestine and its people's right to an independent state with the occupied East Jerusalem as its capital, according to Ma'an. That's pretty much what Kushner's peace plan is going to be. That's what it was in 2000. But yet, he's already lobbying against it. So he wants the Arab leaders to support Palestinian demands on core issues, going back to including you know, Israel withdrawing to the pre-1967, pre-Six-Day War borders were in a offensive-defensive war because they had intelli- intelligence that Egypt and Jordan were, were going to attack. They struck Egyptian airfields, and then a Six-Day War con- commenced. They won that war. They got the West Bank. And now, basically, the, the team that won is supposed to give it all back, which is unprecedented in history, especially when it was a defensive war to protect your homeland. So Kushner, as well as Jason Greenblatt, who is Trump's special representative for international negotiations. They're going to travel to the Middle East in the near future. They're going to present the plan to relevant countries. So you're basically going to have a boss going from country to country, Kushner and Greenblatt going from country to country to country. So that's that's going to be interesting to watch. You've got uh, kind of dueling diplomacy, so to speak. The assessment in Ramallah, Israel Haroms, Israel Hayom said, is that the Trump government will encourage Arab states to begin implementing the plan following Israeli elections and the formation of the new government in May. I really don't know. I don't know what to say. I feel like it's doomed to failure. I do. But we will see. We will see. I do not know. We do not know what they know. Perhaps there is a way that we do not know that they can coerce the Palestinian Authority into adopting this plan. I don't know. All I know is a Palestinian state is not going to reduce terrorism. Is a Palestinian state going to reduce terrorism or is it going to provide a strong base of operations by which to launch more terrorism? Now, perhaps you could put UN troops across the border. You could put international troops across the border for 50 years to try to ensure peace or something like that. And hopefully the Palestinians could, over time, have a change in mindset. I was reading some research the other day where something like, this was a poll back in, I think, 2002 or so, something like 87% of Palestinians supported terrorism to liberate Palestine. The the culture's got to change if there could actually be a viable two-state solution. So we'll see. We'll see. So that's, I, I wasn't planning on spending half the broadcast on this issue, but that's just what happens when it's one of your favorite topics to discuss. I will keep you updated. And all the news stories, again, that I talk about here are going to be at midisnewsbrief.com. And when you're there, be sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. I'm eventually going to have it out on others as well. It might be in the Google Play Store. I don't know. I didn't check. Like I said last week, it has to crawl the show or whatever. So I don't know when exactly that's going to happen. And one day I'm going to put it on all these other uh, podcast platforms as well. The podcast podcast hosting company that I use, they automatically 
you know, can distribute it to all that. So it'll bench, it'll eventually be on as many platforms as possible, but I'm not worried about that right now. I'm just getting started, getting my bearings. I'm not interested in a million people listening to me at the moment, but hey, one day, who knows? Okay, so I want to get into some more interesting news, interesting slash good news. So we talked about the Kurds last time, right? There was an interview with a Kurdish commander that was like, yeah, ISIS should be done in about three weeks. <laughs> and then the interview was nine days before the broadcast. So actually about 17 days before this broadcast. So it's, it's looking like that is happening. The, what's going on is the Syrian, uh, I'm sorry, the, the, Kurdish, the Kurdish-led Syrian Democratic Forces are pushing against 41 positions that are held by ISIS. And you've got the U.S. giving them support from the air. So it's, it's moving. It, it does appear that the so-called caliphate is collapsing. It looks like they're on their last leg, but we'll see. I know that right now they control less than 1%. I mean, that's pretty pretty remarkable. They control less than 1% of what they held in their heyday. That is a group that's, that's on its last leg, thankfully, because this has been, in history, has there been a worst, worst terrorist group? It's, it's brutal. It's brutal. So continue to pray that the, the ISIS so-called caliphate is defeated. And pray that those guys get smart and lay down some of their weapons on their own. But, okay, so this is Wall Street Journal, February 11th. U.S.-backed forces push to capture Islamic State's last territory in Syria. Beirut. U.S.-backed forces aided by coalition airstrikes have captured more than three dozen positions and destroyed fortifications as they moved to retake the last territory under Islamic State control. Heavy fighting is going on inside the last village at the moment. Take in mind, this was four days ago. Mustafa Bali, a spokesman for the Kurdish-led Syrian Democratic Forces, said on Sunday on Twitter. So the Syrian Democratic Forces, they've taken 41 Islamic State positions, they uh, counter uh, attack on a on an attack earlier that day, so it it does look as if the the caliphate is. I mean, it could. Who knows? This week, I I don't know. Is I don't know. So U.S. Colonel said this for the coalition. The end of fighting in eastern Syria is one military stage in this long battle, and the loss of all territorial ground is an important milestone. Colonel Ryan said, but it came at great cost, and the fight is not over. So the U.S. has set a deadline for the withdrawal of more than 2,000 forces by the end of April. So they're you know pushing hard to get ISIS out of there before then. Radur Gzalil, who heads the SDF's foreign relations, said that there were already local special forces in place for the new threat. And as Islamic State militants are captured on the battlefield, including many foreign fighters, they are interrogated for information on planned attacks, he said. The coalition have trained and prepared us for this specific phase. So they're saying, look, it's not the end of the world if the U.S. pulls out. They've trained us for this. We're ready for this. And look, hopefully we can get ISIS out of the way before that happens, and that's what they think is going to be going on. So that is good news. Now on to some interesting news. I'm going to get to Iran and some of their shenanigans and really how in trouble the regime potentially is. You kind of never know. Is it on the brink of collapse? Is revolution possible? It's difficult. One of the reasons that it's difficult is... You basically have two armies. You have the IRGC, you've got the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, and you have the Iranian Army. Those are two separate entities, and the IRGC was created specifically for the Iranian Revolution in 1979 to protect that regime. 
So it's not so much if you can just get the army on your side, you can have a revolution. You got to get both armies on your side. Or if you have, you get one army and you don't get the other, then you've got a civil war. I'm going to continue to pray for regime change in Iran, but I'm also want to be realistic that it can kind of topple or fall as as easily as maybe a, a country with a homogenous fighting force. So we're going to get into that. And hopefully I can get into some of the anti-Semitism stuff. If not, I'll, I'll have to continue it on the next broadcast, which I really hate the anti-Semitism that's going on here in the U.S. and even in the U.S. Congress. It's just absolutely despicable. But, but this was interesting. I, I mean, I think in terms of religious news, this is probably one of the most interesting things that has happened in recent years. And I use the term interesting fairly loosely because some of this I would agree with, some of this I really don't agree with, and I think it's kind of bizarre and disconcerting. But let me just read what's going on. You probably heard of it. Pope Francis, leading a mom, signed covenant, covenant pushing us toward one world religion. So this is from Charisma News. It's a Christian news site. And the idea with kind of their view of eschatology of the end times is that eventually there's going to be a one world government. The Antichrist is going to appear. He's going to usher in a peace of seven years. He's going to break that peace treaty in the middle of the seven years, like it's it's talked about in the book of Daniel. And then there's going to be great tribulation for three and a half years. And then the Messiah, Jesus Christ, is going to come back at the end of that seven years, squelch their enemies, set up a thousand-year reign on earth. At the end of that thousand years, there's a little kerfuffle, and then we've got the end of time, the final judgment, and the eternal age. So when they're talking about pushing us toward toward a one-world religion, it's from their point of view, this is a part of kind of the path what they believe is going to happen in the first place. When it comes to eschatology, I am personally very confused. There are a few things that I do believe. I do believe the Messiah will return. I do believe that Israel is still God's chosen people and he has a special plan for them in the end times. I think it's hard to it's hard to ignore that. It's really hard to reject that. But beyond that, I don't have a whole lot of eschatological views. So, is this a path to that? Quite possibly, if that view of eschatology is correct. So, let me just read a little bit of this so you guys have an idea of what's going on. A historic interfaith covenant was signed in the Middle East on Monday, and the mainstream media in the United States has been almost entirely silent about it. Sheikh Ahmed al-Tayeb is considered to be the most important imam in Sunni Islam. And he arrived at the signing ceremony in Abu Dhabi with Pope Francis, quote, hand in hand and a symbol of interfaith brotherhood. This wasn't just a ceremony for Catholics and Muslims. According to a British news source, the signing of this covenant was done, quote, in front of a global audience of religious leaders from Christianity, Islam, Judaism, and other faiths. The Pope and the Grand Imam of Al-Azhar have signed a historic declaration of fraternity calling for peace between nations, religions, and races in front of a global audience of religious leaders from Christianity, Islam, Judaism, and other faiths. Pope Francis, the leader of the world's Catholics, and Sheikh Ahmed al-Tayeb, the head of Sunni Islam's most prestigious seat of learning, arrived at the ceremony in Abu Dhabi, hand-in-hand, in a symbol of interfaith brotherhood. So, In other words, there was basically an effort to make sure that all the religions, or as many as possible, I guess, of the world were represented, which is is quite interesting. So I I read this covenant, I read the whole thing, and I tell you something, there's some stuff in this that I really, really agree with. When it talks about freedom, when it talks about protection of minorities, when it talks about the treatment of women. I mean, there's so much that I'm like, oh, well, I mean, yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. But there are, there are some very interesting, and I would say on some level, a little bit spooky things that, that go along with it. 
This is interesting. One of the paragraphs from the Declaration, from the Covenant, says this. Freedom is a right of every person. Amen. Each individual enjoys the freedom of belief, thought, expression, and action. The pluralism and the diversity of religions, color, sex, race, and language are willed by God. Did you get that? All these differences in religion are willed by God in his wisdom, through which he created human beings. This divine wisdom is the source from which the right to freedom of belief and the freedom to be different derives. Therefore, the fact that people are forced to adhere to a certain religion or culture must be rejected. As to the imposition of a cultural cultural way of life that others do not accept. So here's here's my problem with that statement. Let me locate my notes here. I pretty much have it all in my head, but so when you say that a diversity of religions is from God and it's his will to bring this plurality because it's beautiful and it's lovely and it's wonderful and all this thing, in my view, now in my humble, humbled view, throwing out the laws of logic, specifically the law of non-contradiction in any setting, no matter what, is a really, really, really bad idea. Say, okay, Winston, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? It's no more clearly laid out in the religious views of the Pope and this imam. The Pope believes what? Jesus Christ was crucified by Pontius Pilate, and he rose from the dead. It's in the Bible. It's in the creeds of the church. This imam does not believe Jesus died on the cross. He therefore does not believe Jesus rose from the dead. He does not believe that adherence to Christ is necessary for salvation, whereas Christians do. He believes quite the opposite, that adherence to Islam is necessary for the possibility of salvation. Possibility. There are no guarantees. Whereas in Christianity, you have promises like, For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. These things I've written to you, that's John 3.16, and in 1 John 5.13, it says, These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. That doesn't exist in Islam. So what's going on here is that you have, you've got contradictions. A and the direct opposite of A cannot be correct. A and that which contradicts A cannot be correct at the same time. So when you're saying God willed, you're basically what you're saying then is God willed confusion, and God willed there to be contradictions when logic itself comes to us, flows from the mind of God. The laws of logic are not physiological. They're not material. They didn't come from natural sources. They are transcendent, and they are beyond us, right? Which is why I believe the laws of logic are is a great proof for the existence of God, just like morality Morality isn't arbitrary. It flows from the very nature of God. And without God, you have no transcendent standard by which to judge whether something is objectively good or evil. Otherwise, it's just a preference. Same with the laws of logic. They are immaterial. They are beyond us. So they had to have come from a source outside of us. And so they had to have come from God. And you're basically saying that God is illogical, God is breaking his own law of non-contradiction, that, that God wills confusion. And this is, this is crazy. So that's why, from, from the onset, whereas there are so many things in this document that I would agree with and go, yeah, absolutely, uh, when it comes to human rights issues especially. But when they start off with this, it's a bit troubling. There are a lot of things, a lot of very interesting things in this that I could uh, continue. Let me look at my notes here real quick because I know there were a few more things. Oh, right, right. Terrorism is deplorable, amen, and threatens the security of people, be they in the east or the west, the north or the south, and disseminates panic, terror, and pessimism. But this is not due to religion, even when terrorists instrumentalize it. This is, it's not due to terror, it's not due to religion. Terrorism has nothing to do with religion. 
I'm not going to get into it here, but these terrorists are inspired by certain documents. They're inspired by certain religious texts. I'll let you make that inference as to what they are. The Quran, the Hadith. Okay, maybe I'll come out and say it. This is the height of dishonesty when you can go to the Quran and you can go to the traditions of Islam and you can find the very things that these terrorists use in order to justify their terrorism. It's, it's not something that we can just brush under the rug in the sake of unity and peace. And then it gives this imam total cover, total cover for the radical nature of what is in their religious books. So that was another thing that particularly perturbed me about it, because if, if we're not honest about what the tenets of a certain religion teach and the way in which the founder of that certain religion acted, I don't believe you can have true peace when you're living in lies. It's just, it's just not going to happen. So we'll, we'll see what happens with this. I'm probably not going to talk about it anymore unless there's further developments. But again, I have, I have some problems with it, and I'm not one of these. Just because there's a lot of things in it that I agree with, that doesn't mean I'm just going to go, oh, for the sake of peace and unity, let's just hold hands and sing kumbaya and pretend that terrorism has nothing to do with a particular religion. Because sadly, it does. Now, I'm not saying that all or most of the adherents of this particular religion want terrorism to go on. But when it's in the tenets, that has to be exposed. I, I do not believe Pope Francis was representing Christ here at all. Why? Christ said in John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. The Apostle Peter said in Acts 4, 12, and there is salvation in no one else. There was no other name given among men by which we must be saved. And there's even, there's even more than that in the scriptures. So he's not speaking from a biblical perspective, and he's, he's not speaking from Christ. So I have to assume He's speaking for himself, speaking for someone else, speaking for this idea of a, of a global, peaceful order if we just hold our hands and sing Kumbaya. But enough on that. So I think I'm going to end off the broadcast probably talking a lot about Iran, more on the Warsaw Conference, because Iran, uh, <laughs> they're, they're not slowing down their shenanigans. Iran wants to build nuclear weapons. Let's not kid ourselves. We know last year that the Israeli government actually sent in spies and they raided, yes, they, they raided and stole all these plans for, for building nuclear reactors and so forth. And so we, we, know, we know that they want the destruction of Israel. They want the destruction of America. All this talk, oh, we just want it for peaceful nuclear energy is a bunch of baloney. I wish, I wish that was the case. I wish the Iranian regime was peaceful. I wish they actually did want peace and didn't want destruction. But considering the fact that they take money that they need to be using to take care of their people and instead use it to fund terrorist groups, terrorist proxies, I think it gives us an idea that they're really not interested in peace. And that when they tell us that, hey, we're just using these nuclear weapons for this, that we don't believe them. Especially, especially, and just like with the JCPOA, Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action in 2015, the so-called nuclear deal, you couldn't actually verify everywhere that there might be nuclear weapons. There were certain sites that were off limits. So we could not actually verify that they were not building nuclear weapons because there were certain places we couldn't even go. It's a load of garbage. And look, this is out of the Jerusalem Post, February 7th. Iran builds new secret missile site in Syria for Hezbollah. Iran, Syria, and Hezbollah are establishing a missile factory on the outskirts of the Syrian town of Safita, Israel revealed on Thursday, according to Channel 12. Israel's strategy, according to the report, is to make the efforts public to thwart the construction and success of the factory, which is supposed to be where Iran will turn Hezbollah's missiles into precision-guided munitions, capable of striking targets in the Jewish state with unprecedented accuracy. So they're building a nuclear site 
so they can blow up the Jewish state. Look, we know that that's what they want to do. They, they call for death to Israel. They call for death to America. We know that that's what they want. So, of course, Israel is going to attempt to thwart the building of this factory. The Israeli report claimed that a front organization named Anis Group was created to purchase materials from Italy, China, and other Asian nations, and that the factory is currently run by Jamal Saeed, said to be a known figure in the field of missile production in the Middle East. So, if you remember, again, Netanyahu's speech at the UN in September, he was pressuring the international community to pay attention to their findings and to look at Iran's movements in Syria. And at the time, he revealed several sites in Beirut. If you remember, he had the the stand up there, and he was pointing out sites. I mean, literally giving a lesson to the United Nations General Assembly. Looked like he was giving them a geography lesson or something. Revealed sites in Beirut, where he said Hezbollah attempted to convert ground-to-ground missiles to precision missiles. So this is what Netanyahu said. Netanyahu says, Israel knows what you're doing, and Israel knows where you're doing it. What Iran hides, Israel will find. In December, he said that the sites had been closed as a result of Israel's exposure of them at the UN. So we move from that to, oh, isn't this great? Isn't this wonderful? This is from the National Council of Resistance of Iran. Iran, top cleric says regime has the formula to create a nuke. They actually have a formula to create a nuke, and he even said as much. I don't know if he's trying to bait us into a war or something. I don't know. Listen to this. A high-ranking cleric in Iran has said that the Mullah's regime has a formula for building a nuclear bomb. Ahmad Katami, Tehran's Friday prayer leader, made this announcement during a mourning ceremony in Mashhad on February 9th. Katami, who is known to echo the views of Supreme Leader al-Khamenei, said Iran never had the intention to build an atomic bomb. Of course, we have the formula, but we do not want to use weapons of mass destruction. Oh, (laughs) we believe you. We believe you. So Iran's basically been able to reduce uranium to 20%. And once you get to there, it's apparently not that hard to get it to 90%, which is what you need for a nuclear bomb. And they're building sites closer to Israel, missile sites closer to Israel. And they have this formula that is a little bit little bit troubling. So... We're going to continue to keep a close eye on Iran. Let me see if I have any more. Yeah, I do have some more Iran stuff in the pile. Uh, let me get to that in just a minute. But I want to talk a little bit more about the summit in Poland, the Warsaw summit in Poland that just took place. This is from the Jerusalem Post, which this is news. This is classic news right here. It's it's attention grabbing. It's headline grabbing. I don't know that it's necessarily anti Netanyahu. Papers want eyeballs. Online sites they want clicks. But it says has Netanyahu sparked Israeli Polish crisis over Jewish deaths in World War II? Now I I must say <laughs> Netanyahu was a bit bold in this realm. I'm kind of surprised. But listen to what Netanyahu said at, at this conference. He he really didn't hold much back. Prime Minister. Benjamin Netanyahu appeared to push back Thursday against a Polish law that prohibits broad statements that the, that the Poland, as a state or as a nation, collaborated with the Nazis to kill Jews during World War II. Quote, Poles cooperated with the Germans, end quote, during the Holocaust, Netanyahu said. So this is interesting. I mean, prior to World War II, Warsaw had the largest Jewish community in Europe and the second largest in the world after New York. So there are about 3 million Jews in, in Poland, and today Poland's Jewish community is literally less than 10,000. I mean, what a, what a marked difference, and what a sad, obviously a very sad, treacherous history there. Prior to leaving Warsaw, after attending a U.S.-led summit on the Middle East, Netanyahu paused to pay homage to the victims of the Holocaust by attending a small ceremony by the memorial to the Jewish resistance fighters in the Warsaw Ghetto, together with U.S. Vice President Mike Pence, 
and the Polish Prime Minister Matuz Morawiecki, or something like that. In a meeting with Israeli reporters in the museum, Netanyahu said that Poles had helped Germans kill Jews during World War II, and that was a known fact. I am saying it here. There is no argument about this. But he did differentiate between the past and the present, explaining that today anti-Semitism is worse in Western Europe than it is in Eastern Europe. So, I mean, part of this is if you remember a, a Polish law that came out last year that it was basically illegal to say that Poland was complicit with Nazis in World War II. I mean, it was a big, I mean, I was really kind of surprised to see this out of Poland, that they would stifle such, I mean, that's such an affront to freedom of speech that you can't report any kind of reality. So that was that was surprising and disheartening coming out of Poland that they would do that. But I think that's one of the reasons why Netanyahu was so forward with that, because he was trying to get the facts out there. Whereas the Poland government was, look, I understand them being ashamed of it, but look, every country has stuff that they're ashamed of. We have stuff here in the U.S. that we're ashamed of. Every country in the world has bad marks in their past. I mean, it's ridiculous that it seems like Israel and the U.S. are singled out amongst all the nations with that, but it's just, that's just a sad reality. So you can admit that, but then you can say we stand against it. You don't have to stifle speech about it. It's ridiculous. It'd be like us stifling all speech that we did anything wrong to Native Americans. Why would we do that? Because when you do that, when you can't admit the wrongs of the past, such as with Native Americans or Jim Crow or slavery or whatever, it's not good for being able to discuss those things so that we can then hopefully overcome them. Now, it seems like some people want to stay in the past, right? But it's, it's cathartic and it's good to admit your mistakes, but then to move on. But say you can't ever talk about your mistakes in the past? I mean, it's it's insane. Now, also in this conference, which was very interesting, which is what I'm going to have to basically end off with, this is from the Washington Free Beacon. Pence rips Europe a new one for helping Iran skirt U.S. sanctions. Vice President Mike Pence, speaking before leaders from more than 50 countries, offered a stinging rebuke of leading European nations for their backdoor efforts to help Iran skirt U.S. sanctions, demanding these countries follow the White House's lead and scrap the landmark nuclear deal, which has been on life support since President Donald Trump abandoned the Obama administration's chief foreign policy achievement. So you've got all these European nations there, and this is an opportunity for Trump's acting top diplomats, Mike Pence, Mike Pompeo, to make that argument again that we've got to pull out of the disastrous Iran nuclear deal. Pence was direct in his rebuke of key European allies, most notably France, Germany, and the UK, expressing a level of frustration that has not often made its way into the public discourse. Of course, as we know, this administration, they're, I mean, look, they're willing to call things as it is. You look like with NATO. I mean, did we ever imagine a president would actually try to get NATO members to uphold their end of the agreement and to put at least 2% of their GDP towards defense spending? Did we think that would ever happen? (laughs) And he's going over there saying, look, you guys need to pay your fair share. You can't just expect the U.S. to cover you in a crisis. We are allies, but allies mean that we all chip in. You can't have 0.5% of your GDP go toward defense and expect to be a a NATO ally. It's ridiculous. Anyway, that's a whole other topic. The forum itself was noteworthy. Pence slammed European leaders in front of the foreign ministers from scores of countries, including leading Arab nations. So this basically, this is bringing the nuclear program back to the forefront. And basically, the article goes on to say that Pompeo and international leaders, they met to discuss like all kinds of challenges that are facing the Middle East. The ministerial, initially billed as an effort to counter Iran, was notable in recent days, primarily because it appeared like Iran had disappeared from the agenda. And so Mike Pence, he's trying to bring it back. He wants to put the focus back on Tehran and warn European leaders that them wanting to appease Tehran and and keep its economy from collapsing is not met with 
positive vibes <laughs> from the from the Trump administration. They are trying to prop up and keep a terrorist regime in business when we have an opportunity, the opportunity of a generation to see the Iranian terrorist regime collapse. Europe is trying to skirt all of our sanctions to keep it on life support. Why would we give a dollar to what's considered to be the largest state sponsor of terror in the world, at least from the U.S.'s perspective, if not the largest, one of the largest? Would not, for the sake of the world, for the sake of the Iranian people, would we not want to see that regime collapse and some semblance of a democracy come up in its place. I mean, anything has got to be better than what they have now. But when financial interests are in play, it's another ballgame. So I'm going to end with this. He says, sadly, some of our leading European partners have not been nearly as cooperative. In fact, they have led the effort to create mechanisms to break up our sanctions. Pence said, just two weeks ago, Germany, France, and the UK announced the creation of a special financial mechanism designed to oversee a mirror image transaction system that would replace sanctionable international payments between EU businesses and Iran that don't technically cross Iran's borders. They call this scheme a special purpose vehicle, Pence said. We call it an effort to break American sanctions against Iran's murderous revolutionary regime. It is an ill-advised step that will only strengthen Iran, weaken the EU, and create still more distance between Europe and the United States. Let's be allies, guys, and take on this thuggish, brutal terrorist regime. How about that? Let's put the interests of the world in the interest of peace and the interest of stability in the Middle East above our financial interests. Make sense? I think it makes sense, but that apparently doesn't make sense to everybody. That's all I'm going to talk about on that issue. I want to get to one more story. I've got a whole stack here on the anti-Semitism going on with certain members of Congress that will heretofore go unnamed for one second. Ellen Omar and the just firestorm that's been surrounding her. But I, I thought this was kind of interesting. I want to end with a story from the New York Times. And it says, Apple and Google urged to dump... Saudi app that lets men track women. If you're listening to this podcast, you're probably familiar with the fact that women's rights in Saudi Arabia are pretty much non-existent. The current crown prince, King Salman, he would like to see on some level some more. He's allowed women to drive and some other things. But they have this very interesting app that you can get and iTunes, just like you can subscribe to my podcast, Mitty's News Brief, on iTunes. Uh, do so if you would, and if you like it, leave a review, but only if you like it. And Google, which it might be there. You can look up Mitty's News Brief on the Google Play Store. Maybe it's there. That allows men to control women on an unprecedented level. But there's some interesting stuff in here because there are some women that <laughs> they've gotten creative on how to escape the app and how to escape Saudi Arabia. But here's what it says. A Saudi mobile application that lets men track and restrict the movements of women in the, in the kingdom has come under increased scrutiny this week with an American senator and rights groups urging Apple and Google to remove it from their platforms, accusing the technology giants of facilitating gender discrimination. Saudi, quote, guardianship laws give women a legal status similar to that of minors in many areas of their lives. Every Saudi woman, regardless of age, has a male, quote, guardian, usually her father, or husband, but sometimes her brother or so on, who must give his permission for her to get a passport, have certain medical procedures, or get married. The app in question, called Absure, was launched in 2015 by the Saudi government. It allows men to manage the women under their guardianship by giving or revoking their right to travel through airports, tracking them by their national identity cards or passports, the men can turn on notifications that alert them with a text message anytime a woman under their guardianship passes through an airport. Can you imagine why a woman living in Saudi Arabia might want to sneak off and get away from Saudi Arabia? So I want to get to Cook's response, Apple, Apple and Google's response. 
So representatives of Apple and the Saudi government did not immediately respond to requests for comment. A Google spokesman confirmed that the company is assessing the app to determine if it is in accordance with its policies. So it goes on to talk about things that have happened under King Salman and so forth. But I want to talk about this one lady, an 18-year-old Saudi woman. I say brave 18-year-old Saudi woman, Rehaf Al-Kunun, barricaded herself in a hotel room in the Bangkok airport to avoid being returned to her family after she had escaped. She had slipped away from her family during a holiday in Kuwait and boarded a plane for Thailand, but was stopped in the airport. She was later granted asylum in Canada. Now listen to this. Another Saudi woman who had fled the kingdom for Australia described covertly using her father's phone to access Absher and give herself permission to travel, allowing her to leave the country undetected. You know that was a very, very brave move. Because if she had been caught doing that, who knows what would have happened to her. But you know what? Maybe that kind of stuff happens to her all the time anyway. And so she figured, well, what the heck? Why not try to get out of here? When asked about Absher in an interview with National Public Radio on Monday, Mr. Cook of Apple said he had not heard of it. Maybe he has, maybe he hasn't. Who knows? But obviously, we'll take a look at it if that's the case, he said. Both companies have responded to similar campaigns to remove apps. And it talks about, in December, Apple removed a religious app from its online store that portrayed being gay as, quote, a sickness and a sin after a gay rights group campaigned against it, NBC News reported. So we'll see. But I really don't trust the big tech companies to put principle over profit. And we've seen that before. I actually wish I had the list in front of me of things uh, that they have done. But I have over and over again, again, I'm just shocked that they'll side with Pakistan or Saudi Arabia or China or all of these just dictatorial regimes that they'll side with them and give them what they want just so that they can continue to do business in the area. At some point, you have to put principle above making money. And you have to put basic freedom, basic human decency, basic human rights derived from God above a bigger stock price. And I certainly hope Apple and Google will do that. We'll just have to wait and see. All right. Well, that will do it for this edition of Mideast News Brief. Thank you guys so much for joining in. Please visit MideastNewsBrief.com where you can get the links to all of the articles discussed in this podcast and previous podcasts so you can do your own research. Please subscribe to our podcast if you have not already in iTunes. And if you like it, please leave a review. But again, only if you like it. Thank you guys so much for joining us, and we will see you next time.